0: My guest today is Professor Dean Collin, who's Professor of Economics and Finance at Northwestern University, and the Founder and President of Innovations for Poverty Action, a nonprofit organization dedicated to discovering and promoting solutions to global poverty problems. Welcome, Dean. Oh, I
1: didn't hear you well. I'm sorry. Hi. Yes, good to be with you. <laughs> Excellent. Sorry. Yeah, th- th- thanks for doing this. So
0: exactly. I have a few of your papers. Um, and uh, I want to start with your, um, uh, they are all, all reasonably recent from last year. So the first one I have is big loans to small businesses, predicting winners and losers in an entrepreneurial lending experiment. Uh, you see here, we experimentally study the impact of substantially larger enterprise loans in collaboration with an Egyptian lender. Larger loans generate small average impacts, but machine learning using psychometric data reveals dramatic heterogeneity, you say here. So top performance substantially increase profits, whereas profits of poor performance drop. So there's a lot of different things here, Dean. I was trying to really sort of get my head around this. So one is the size of the loan um one is sort of the exanti uh performance of the of the borrower right uh and there's some lender characteristics here too so there's sort of a multifactorial problem so, so what do you find in this data
1: so you know the thing that's striking well, first of all I mean just to back up a second the problem that we're trying to address here is the fact that there's a lot of fairly small informal enterprises in in most Low income, or even middle income, in some contexts, um, economies. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and there does seem to be, a, you know, a myriad of constraints which hold back firms from from growing um, into something that we would more refer to as a small medium enterprise. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Yes. Um, and a lot of times, lenders who are lending in what's called microcredit. Are doing so with a cap to how much they'll lend, um, and um, and so they are. But yet the question is that we started off with was, you know, are some of those enterprises able to uh, manage a, a larger loan? Like where that actually could be what unleashes them. It's probably not everybody, but you know, are there some? And so is there information that the that the lender has, the credit officers basically about which enterprises can. Um can blossom with a much, much, much larger loan. Um, and and so that was basically the test. And the lender was keen to see an expansion of larger loans, was understandably nervous to do so. Um, and so it was a kind of a match made in heaven in that sense to say, well, that's you know that's why you kind of do research along the line along the side of that kind of business process change because we can help to measure what's happening and and um obviously the default rate is something they can observe directly but even so even if they you know if they're doing things experimentally then they're more able to see what's actually causing changes in default uh, as well as the changes for the enterprises um so that's kind of the background um the striking thing that we found (coughs) what sorry i know This I know that's horrible for the review for the hopefully you, oh, no worries, it. No you edit? We don't just do non-stop. You edit this or no? Uh, we
0: don't typically edit, but that's okay.
1: Oh sorry. Okay, hi everybody. <laughs> Here we go. Got something. Let me get some water or something. Sure. Um, but the you know the basic um result, which was which was surprising to us was that on average we we didn't see much change from going from going 4x on loan size it's a big big shift Um, the control group got 2x loan size so it was a doubling the size of the relative difference between the treatment and the control groups but the striking thing is that it was it was clear that what was driving the null result was some really important heterogeneity where some of those businesses were able to take those loans and do really really well and others actually did not with the opposite and they did actually worse off because of those larger loans and they were not able to handle the larger the larger loans and and the average kind of averaged those two together to a small positive number depending on which outcome we looked at we saw like modest positive but mostly ne- mostly null kind of results but that was masking this 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 heterogeneity where some people were made much better off and others not and then the second part that was striking to us was what was driving that heterogeneity were psychometric questions, not your standard loan application, like how you know, tell us about your cash flows and how long have you been in business and the collateral and stuff like this, or just assets. <clears throat> and but instead it was just a, it was a battery of psychosocial questions that were basically um, measuring how. You know, how optimistic people were and how aggressive they were going to be in terms of um, in terms of ambitions for growing their business. Mm. And basically what we found is that the people who were kind of most what shall we call it, overly optimistic about how things can go actually did worse, right? That they were overly optimistic and they made investments that didn't pan out, whereas the people who were a bit more cautious, um, did. they're the ones who actually made incremental changes. That were profitable and and led them to be considerably better off, um, you know, a year year or two later.
0: So there, there are two things here, Dean. If I understand this, one is um, sort of there's a is a fire in the belly question. Um, is the entrepreneur really going out there to make it happen? <laughs> and sometimes that is negatively correlated with your initial conditions. Um, and that was the size of the loan question. So um, so, so, it, so in general, what you're finding is that there's a lot of variation in outcomes, and if you average them, you could reach a, a null result or you know, something that is not really uh, conclusive. But then if you sort of take the data part and look into it, what yeah, you find, if I if I understand this correctly, is that the entrepreneur who really is, I think you call it go getter or something like that. You know, a go getter entrepreneur, uh, or an enterprise led by a go getter, uh, has a higher chance of success.
1: Right, that is really the driving factor here. So they go. So. Um... For, for what it's worth, we've been, you know, we've shifted around a little bit in our nomenclature trying to figure out how to best um, characterize the finding. Um, and, um, and so I think, you know, we think of optimism as probably the best, the best term. Um, we did use the, t- we have used the term go-getter too. Um, we, we're literally in the middle of, you know, as you're well aware with working papers, you know, <laughs> in progress and as you get feedback and you learn and you update and so, um, the the nomenclature that i think more accurately captures what we're what we're going after here really is more about optimism mm. um and be, um you know one of the the striking one of the striking results is that you know the people who are overly optimistic um <clears throat> you know they do do better um in 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 a constrained world right so if we just look at but you know keep in mind that there's a there's a big difference in what we can say from the experimental results versus the correlation results in terms of our confidence of understanding causality right and so the you know you know in within the control group in a cross-sectional analysis so this is all with people who are more constrained they're not getting, none of them are getting big loans and if we just want to sort them into piles and say who does better who does worse within that kind of Cross-sectional comparison. What we do find is the people who are overly optimistic, or or have higher levels of optimism, let's say, do actually do better. They make better incremental changes when really constrained. It's when you kind of relax the constraints in a big way that all that they go hog wild in a sense, <laughs> and and then that actually leads to that. And so you so that kind of drive is good when constrained. When unconstrained. That's when it can lead to problems, right? And and in a sense, this at least I think mirrors, at least I mean for what it's worth, this mirrors um, I, for me an intuition that comes from. You know, a more general, a more general intuition about, uh, you know, create, you know, creative people and um, and uh, you know, kind of people who are um, ambitious and entrepreneurial that these tend to, you know, can be very good, very good characteristics for for growing over time and doing better and better and better in terms of um, financial outcomes or business outcomes or creative outcomes. Um, But, you know, too much of a good thing can lead to bad things. And and so, you know, you want to you want to wrestle with that creativity and put in constraints in place and that actually can be a really good thing to harness that creativity and help it do better. Um, and if it's just unbounded and unconstrained, then then that can lead to lead to lead to challenges. It's you know, in a sense, it's not so different than thinking about the way a lot of great partnerships happen and work. Um, you know, I, I don't know maybe this is way too out of left field, but I almost I feel like this is Um, to some extent applies to my life on a personal level Um, in that you know I'm I'm the kind of person who finds a lot of I I get excited by a lot of different things as you know from our talks and setting up this podcast that there's a lot of different facets of my life that are um, not all the research is like also focused on one topic it's a lot of different things Um, but part of what's allowed me as an individual to to accomplish that is by you know Teaming up and surrounding myself with, with people who are much more disciplined than I am. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: So, <laughs> and, so you know, and that that combination, um, you know, and they you know, it, it, you know, also creative people too. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying like like, um, like everybody fits into nice little buckets. But there's a certain element where that you know you think about the team of people that are responsible for any sort of enterprise activity, and you you don't want all to be the same personality types. And that's the you know that that kind of recognition is 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 also I think part of what we're picking up on this, and that it's not about the team composition, but it is about the personality of that that entrepreneur.
0: That entrepreneur, yeah. So it's really fascinating Dave. So I want to take a quick detour. So if I understand this correctly, optimism is a necessary condition for success. Um, I, no? Yeah,
1: I, I wouldn't want to go there. <laughs> that's a, that's... <laughs> I, I'm, the, you're you're peaking the kind of the mathematician in me when you use words like necessary. <laughs> right. I, I want to make it seem like we have some evidence that says that you know, without that you cannot succeed, and that is not something that we would ever but want to it's, say. But it's
0: it's helpful, <clears throat> it's helpful for success. Let's put it that way. Yes. Yes.
1: Uh, yeah, would...
0: But then, so I want to look at this in the U.S. context. This is not in your mm-hmm. research. So, if you go to Silicon Valley as an entrepreneur. Money is plenty. Everybody's willing to throw money at you, <laughs> you know, uh, with a with a two-page PowerPoint document. Uh, the alpha generation in Silicon Valley appears to be not that great, actually, um, uh, in my view, at least if you look at aggregate data. So, so what you're arguing here is that an optimistic entrepreneur in a constrained environment does exceptionally well, and when money becomes plenty, <laughs> performance sort of drops, right?
1: Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I, I would be very cautious to extrapolate all the way from <laughs> the types of enterprises that we're dealing with in yeah. Egypt, all the way to the kind of creative, um, creativity, you know, breaking things kind of mentality of Silicon Valley. Um, there, that... I think that's enough out of sample that I'd be very hesitant to say that like this psychometric survey could be used and find the same predictions there um, it's these are you know we're talking about people who are running a restaurant um, a store a small store expanding to multiple stores expanding expanding by taking over this board next to them hiring some people you know nobody Nobody in our sample is, you know, trying to create an app that's going to, you know, revolutionize the realty mar- the realtor market by, by, you know, cutting out middlemen, or no one is, you know, creating the next Uber to, you know, to create, you know, ad hoc entrepreneurs, drivers with spare cars to drive. And, you know, like, that's, you know, that's kind of a breaking things in a good way, solving some market failures um the- it's not not you know we we're, we're at a scale that's very different so that that you do need some creative energy some creative you know um um and and i have no doubt that like unconstraining some people can be a good thing there
0: yeah i have looked at the data again so my intuition is that there is an extrapolatable component here which is when resources are plenty you get a little bit less um, I don't know what the right mm-hmm. term would be, but um, maybe less stringent as to how you deploy those resources. So mm-hmm. in, in the sense that you know, if you think about alpha creation um, or, or profit creation, sometimes some constraints are helpful, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, and this there's you know work by um Mulanathan and, and Eldar Shafir. there's a book called Scarcity. Um, which is a great book um, written about maybe 10 10 or so years ago now, Um, but with ideas that don't, you know, they're never always going to be in in relevant. Um, That, you know, thinks very hard about how different people have different things that are scarce, right? Money, time being the kind of two big ones that 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 we all face in some respects, obviously, with different levels of scarcity and. And um, and that affects everything from attention to our ability to deal with temptation, to our ability to plan. Um, it off it causes a, a, a focusing on what's actually scarce, but at the same time a lack of attention on other things. Um, it can be very hard to understand and predict exactly what that scarcity does, because each person can be different in terms of how that scarcity is shifting our attention to specific tasks. But it you know we tend to think it's very much responsible for, at least I tend to think it's responsible for um, why, for instance, poverty often is very focused. People who are poor are very focused on short run because there's some really harsh scarcity that that they're facing in immediate, immediate decisions. And that might actually cause better decision making on very micro tasks that are very focused on the short run, but while then kind of non unable to ever think about the long run, um, because there's so much focus on the short run. and so there's trade-offs that happen like that. Um, you know, I, I think we've all been in situations where um, you know, just think about any sort of budgetary process for some for you know wealthier kind of endeavors. Um, you know, I think about you know if I have a project with with a large budget and another one with a small budget, and you know, but they're similarly complex, um, then I've no doubt that I'm on the one that has a tight budget, um, making, you know, much more deliberate, thoughtful, careful decisions about exactly what expenditures we, you know, approve and what we don't approve versus the one that is more more relaxed. Um, that's just the nature of the beast, And, and that's not that you don't need a psychological mechanism for that. You also you just need some sort of, you know, thinking about the cost of time and the cost of being diligent. Um, and you know, and what that trade-off is between spending time on that relative to the the money you're saving by by being tight. So.
0: That is uh, I, I don't know if this is in the paper Dean, but there's also a lender borrower relationship uh, that mm-hmm. is dynamic and and uh, longitudinal. And so suppose I get a bunch of money and then I show some growth, and the lender gets enamored by my growth. Uh, and gives me gives me more money. As opposed to in a constrained environment where I cannot really show growth in a tactical time horizon and the lender just goes away. So there isn't there some sort of a cutoff point in between these two things?
1: So I mean there's definitely this kind of age old problem, and this is true of sovereign debt too, that there's you know kind of you know, models were written theoretical models pointing out long ago that like you know uh, refinancing loans with the next loan being larger and larger at some point you know has to collapse right that can't possibly be the, the, the let me actually, let me be clear can't possibly be the only reason for repayment that's all <laughs> right is the promise of a larger loan at some point yeah. that comes unraveled so there has to be other things at play that generate repayment not just the promise of the next loan um, if a lender, you know, one of the problems that, that plagues the microcredit market in general is that a lot of lenders that are in what called the microcredit space, they might, for internal management reasons, not be able to, um, to, to give people larger loans and so people get to the max. Or it could even be regulatory. That depends on how they're registered with the local government and what the local government policies are, that they might just be an entity which only has permission to lend up to a certain level. Um, one of the um, and so it, it is it is clear that once you if you have a, borrowers that are at the maximum that you're able to lend, um, if it's a regulatory issue, then you have you have a, a bit of a challenge on your in your hands, right? you you're now giving them the most that they can um, you can give them. And if they actually want more and more, you might be losing your very best clients as they, you know, kind of excel and do better and then move on to a bigger bank. Um, now, if your mission is social impact and that's a good thing, then you should, you know, in some sense, be happy about that, and then go refocus on the groups that actually need more of a subsidy or more of a kickstart, and that's maybe a good role for a um, a lender that has a double bottom line aspiration to it. Um, you know, if it doesn't have the if you know if it doesn't have the capacity for doing larger and larger loans, then that's okay. Um, one of the initial projects we had on this that didn't pan out, but one of the this pro this project that we did was started off in South Africa for us, where we were going to be working with two different lenders, one that was just doing micro and the other was doing SME, and they weren't passing the the, the micro was not passing the clients off to the SME lender. Mm-hmm. This is a kind of, you know, a byproduct of when you think about the banking sector, you know, if you have private information, if you have information on who are the good clients and who are the bad clients. You want to use that information to your advantage as a bank to make more and more money and lend more and more to good clients. Um, but if you if you can't lend up to you know past a certain point, then you have some bad incentives in this system mm-hmm. to not be providing the optimal service for the client. Now, one obvious way of dealing with that is just to, just to kind of sell the names to the to the bigger blank and just say, you know what? How about we feed you good names and you you pay us for them, there's some value to that. And you know, we wanna we want to capture that value so that we can then make profits and use that money to lend to poorer households and poorer business. And so there can be a contract that could work for that, but you don't usually see that too often. Mm. Usually if you see that kind of growth, you see it within one firm where they might move it from one department to another department that does larger loans. Mm. Um, even that though is strikingly you know, tricky. Um, some, some colleagues of mine, Natalia Regal and Ben Roth, um, um, they're both at professors at, at HBS, have a project on this in Chile showing how you know some simple incentives to credit officers can help help shift that. Where if you don't, you know, if you're not incentivizing your team to shift people into the more the the you know better loans for them, then they don't. And like people respond to in, those kinds of incentives on, on payroll. And so, um, so there's a lot of lot of situations where you don't see that transfer happening. Best way so to yeah. it. And, and for various internal firm reasons, external relationships between two firms, um, and um, so, you know, this was one path for for doing that within within the firm. Now, one of the striking things here is that the credit officers actually didn't get it right which clients were going to do the best with the bigger loans. Hmm. They reported which ones did. Can you hear me? You're frozen. Hello. Sorry. Oh, you back so back ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, no, no, I think that was the end of the thought, which was um, that, you know, this um, this is a, a combination of an organizational behavior challenge for banks combined with regulatory in some places, um, combined with how to contract across banks for something that is about... Kind of client referrals, basically, and you know, which is something that lots of industries have figured out how to monetize client referrals, and you know, and this could be an area where um, there can be some real progress in low-income countries where we don't see that kind of monetization. Um, But if if we can see it more, it it would work. Having said that, I think that one of the one of the striking results that we did find is that the the credit officers got it backwards. Which ones were the better clients? So it wasn't. not it's not so obvious who to pass on and more work is needed on that to understand um and to understand how to set up a system where the right the right people are transferred up um so that so that the right businesses are able to grow
0: so so i want to board on the paper uh, but so it seems to me dean that there's sort of a micro inefficiency in the sense that the loan officers don't get it right that perhaps the heuristics that they're they're using are incorrect And there's a macro inefficiency in the sense that um, small banks don't just get their clients more successful, put them into bigger banks that has less regulatory constraints and so on and so forth. So there's a macro inefficiency. So there's a policy that that could be corrected uh, with the policy. The micro inefficiency is sort of some sort of spreadsheet heuristic <laughs> that the lending officers are using that uh, don't seem to work
1: yeah yeah well and the you know the tricky thing is so i don't you know in, in a sense it's more of a business policy i think than a regulatory policy um you know i'm not sure that i quite see a role at least at least it doesn't scream out at me that's for the regulator other than you know making it easy for two banks to write a contract with each other and, you know so that the bank that only offers small loans can pass clients off to the bank that does the big loans the psychosocial aspect though is a bit tricky that's not you know this was I think of as an important result that I would not put as like ready for policy in the sense that um, in the you know particularly given the reversal that we're finding um, so this is you know I don't know that it's realistic to add these questions, you know to a loan application for instance um if you could and but that would need to be tested and understood like what happens and do people learn you could easily imagine risk of manipulation being at play if people know these questions are being asked and how to answer them and how you answer them affects how large a loan you get and that's obviously as a problem in the long run <clears throat> you know with particularly with the internet um and people's ability to kind of um, trade information quickly. You know, start having Reddit channels on how to answer loan applications and stuff. So I, I, I don't know. So I, I, I would, you know, very much hesitate to to jump into um, what the policy implication is quite so quickly there um, for how to how to underwrite, other than to point out that there's um, there's a challenge and there's some important heterogeneity that does actually um, really drive impact um, from getting a much larger.
0: A lot of new information to consider. So I want to go into another paper, uh, a totally different topic. Mental health therapy as a core strategy for increasing human capital, evidence from Ghana. Uh, you, you say here that we study the impact of cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, for individuals selected from the general population of poor households in rural Ghana. Results from two to three months from uh, after randomized intervention show strong impacts on mental and physical health, cognitive and socio-emotional skills, and downstream economic outcomes. So, what exactly is cognitive behavioral therapy?
1: So, cognitive behavioral therapy, first of all, has um, it, um, you know, there's a, there's a few different things that fit under its umbrella, and so it's not it's not something that's like um, i'm i'm probably not the going to do the best job of giving you the simple two sentence summary definition um, um it is obviously a form of therapy there's been a um, tremendous amount of evidence from around the world on its effectiveness in dealing with a few different issues um, depression um substance abuse um you know, in general, it's it's about trying to teach people about how to make plans, how to understand what you control and what you don't control. Take responsibility for what you control. Learn to adapt because of the things you don't control. Like, how do you? How how do you deal with that? But, you know, recognizing that you don't control it. So then how do you adapt around it? Um, It's about learning perspective in in terms of, um, you know, when something if something bad happens or someone says something, trying to think about like what, you know, what are the different ways of trying to understand and interpret what was just said? One might be really bad, but there might be, you know, not so bad ways of interpreting what was just said. Um, and so some of it is uh, very much about empathy in that sense and trying to teach empathy. But a l- l- good chunk of it is I is, is really about trying to understand what you control in life how to put yourself into situations that lead you to do the things that you want to do. Mm. Knowing your, how does your environment affect your behavior? And then and then letting that chain, letting that, you know, being conscious about saying like, okay, I know that I tend to do X when I'm in this environment. I don't want to do X, so don't put myself in that environment. And I want to do Y. And so what are the circumstances when I do Y? It's when I'm with these people, it's when I'm doing this. It's, it's when I wake up in the morning at an early hour, whatever the case is, it's learning those environmental factors that help change your behavior and then putting yourself in those positions so that you then are more likely to achieve your goals. Um, that's just one aspect of it to be clear, but that is that is a, that is a, a big aspect. Um, and the, 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 I think the most important thing that we learned from this study in, in Ghana, we actually set off the study with a different motivation um we set off this study with a motivation of understanding we saw really high levels of depression in ghana more so than we expected from a representative survey that we had done in the country as a whole and um and based on that combined with results from an earlier study that we had done that was an economic based program for ultra poor households to provide grants and training and coaching to help them um, start new and sustainable sources of income and on that study we found some important success but it wasn't it wasn't rampant for everybody and some did better than others and so we combined those two in those two observations and we asked the question i wonder whether mental health issues and depression is part of what's holding some people back from seizing economic opportunities that are being presented to them so That was actually the original motivation for the study, and so we um, we we learned about a cognitive able therapy program that a professor at University of Ghana um, was running, um, um, and um, and so we we reached out. I mean, we we already knew her. It wasn't it wasn't that we she she was part of the um, part of the work that I referred to earlier. Um, this is Angela Oforiata, I'm referring to, who was part of that earlier work that documented the high levels of depression. And um, and she would have been working on a group-based um, adaptation of cognitive behavioral therapy that is manageable without, with you know fairly, um, that you can implement it at decent scale through a training program to train, um, train people to do this. And so it wasn't something that needed like people who had like 20 years of clinical experience running um, therapy. And so that was that was key is that it was actually possible to do this at scale throughout the country in rural areas. Okay. Um, and so we rolled that program out along, and the idea was to do that first and then do this economic program. But then the, the, the initial results that came back from just the cognitive behavioral therapy, and this gets to the heart of that um, paper you're referring to, what we were struck by was the program was working for everybody, even if you weren't depressed up front because the program – was not even though it was designed around trying to deal with depression, it was not requiring someone be depressed in order to be in the program. It was just targeting a representative sample of poor households in rural areas.
0: Mm.
1: And and when we looked at the treatment effects, we saw really big treatment effects on mental health outcomes six months later, and some self-reported economic outcomes as well. But the striking thing to us was that these results were basically the same whether or not you were depressed or not at start at, you know in, in kind of the baseline before the program mm.
0: diagnosing depression as you know is always tricky unless yes. it's a clinical depression and so would you say that poverty is generally correlated with depression
1: i, I mean statistically it definitely is And and it seems kind of for obvious reasons. Um, I mean, it is. um, um, So, you know, now getting at, you know, so there's clearly a correlation. And I also would actually be totally happy to assert that it's kind of obvious that the causation goes both ways. Um, and that you know, yes, there can be important work to try to help understand the magnitude of the two directions and but like anybody who puts out a paper that just says, nope, the causality is all from one to the other and not the other way. I you know that just I, I think that just defies um, a bit of common sense now. You know, a separate question is when you know, even if you're finding causality both ways. Um, it has a certain analogy to, um, you know, cholesterol statins, as I understand them, like where um, at least this is what I've been told And maybe this is wrong. Maybe you have another podcast from someone who's going to say is <laughs> like, this is you know, exactly wrong. But my understanding is that we know that, you know, high levels of cholesterol are definitely correlated with heart problems. Um, we do have good theories as to say they're, they're <laughs> even causal to heart problems. And we know that statin drugs can lower cholesterol levels. Okay, but we don't know if lowering cholesterol via statins actually reduces the heart problem or not. And that that and that's, it has an analogy here to the mental health, which is like if we it could be that you know being depressed leads to low adoption of economic opportunities and low, low productivity in the workplace and enterprise. Um, so Dean, but
0: you cannot throw a wrench into a fifty billion dollar business. What's that? You cannot throw a wrench into a fifty billion dollar business called stadiums.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> but <you> no, <know>, like I was kidding. Maybe you know more. That's my understanding of that space. Is that it's it's you know there's lots of reasons to think it's the link is solid, but there is a you know I think the the key point is that just be, even if A causes B that doesn't mean that artificially moving A causes B to change too. That's the key right. thing, right? And so even if we know solidly that A causes B, so if we know that poor mental health causes low economic activity, that doesn't mean that a particular program which moves mental health will also cause, um, this. The, that there might, there's there's a difference between, you know, mental health is not a simple construct, right? So you could, you could see it being causal to an economic opportunity, um but the type of process that you go through to reduce it might actually miss the necessary components so you might measure it and it might go down and you might say great depression is down but it didn't go down in the way that actually is important for shifting the economic opportunities so that's still an open question is to say even if we see them correlated and even if we know they're causal does moving one move the other or not and that's a separate question
0: Yeah, it's a bit of a sort of a runaway process, right? So poverty and mental health. Uh, There's a hysteresis, as you say, going back and forth. Uh, And so I think what you're proving here, Dean, if I understand this, is that some intervention into that hysteresis loop is beneficial for the individual, right? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. No, that that is basically what we're finding. Um, we do find that it has, I mean, this is early on that program. So it's, you know, we do find some, um, it, it, we have very limited economic outcomes. It's only at six months. The really interesting thing will come in the long run, which we're we're gonna be working on this coming year. Um, we, we just recently got the data in for the long run follow-up. Um, and that also includes now the economic program, which was implemented after the cognitive behavioral therapy. So we did that for four months. And then a few months after that, we did our measurement of the impact of the CBT program before all of the economic programs, what's called the graduation model. And that was done um, um, through Innovations for Poverty Action and Heifer Heifer International as well. Yeah, so I'm going to
0: go into another paper, Ardeen. So randomization of causality, ethnography for mechanisms, illiquid savings for liquor in an autocratic society. I uh, found this interesting. So, um, what your researchers do, you say, when confronted with surprising results? Financial access uh, innovations usually leave temptation spending unaffected or reduced. However, we found that promotion of savings lockboxes in a largely autocratic society increased alcohol consumption and blood pressure despite no one reporting intentions to save for alcohol. Uh, I would say nobody ever report intentions to save for alcohol whether it's a log box not right, right. <laughs> So in this case, you're finding sort of a, a relationship between people who save in a, in a systemic way like in a log box tend to uh, tend to ultimately uh, consume more alcohol.
1: So, you know, basically, that is what we found was, I mean, this is a comparing treatment to control. It's not comparing kind of within treatment, those who save more versus less. It's comparing those who are offered the box versus not. Um, And being offered this box and everybody basically took the box so basically having this box um, did end up leading to um, higher alcohol consumption, mostly among men. Um, And it was mirrored along with higher blood pressure and and like i said it was you know or like you said it was not it was not the intention <laughs> um, it, and um and it wasn't even what you know upfront people said that they would do right and no one so there was this interesting at least to me in between where <clears throat> you know people were willing to share once there was a bit more um, it was more drawn out and we shared the results with people and they said yeah that makes sense but up front when you were just told like, here's a savings box, what are your savings goals? No one, no one would actually, no one actually named alcohol as a savings goal. Um, so I think, you know, one of the, like, there's, I think, two important lessons from this project for us. One is substantive and the other is methodological. On a substantive level, um, it, it, you know, it, there's a little bit of anti-paternalism as our takeaway from this, which is, um, you know, what we call a temptation good in in the U.S. and other contexts, um, in this context, is an aspiration good. And, uh, you know, so, you know, obviously alcohol can have some externalities where someone who is drunk can, you know, do things that are bad to other people. And um, but there's also a context in which alcohol can just be a, a luxury good that you aspire for and you have a good time with, and and so there is a certain element where we need to, you know, there is this kind of instinct to be a bit um, judgmental on it when it comes to development and what what a good outcome is. But I think it you know it's something that we need to question about ourselves, and 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 who are we to judge what is a good or bad outcome? Um, yeah. As long as there's no external, you know, when there's externalities and you're harming third parties, I think that gets a little bit, um, you know, less um, open to and open to this kind of issue. Um then you can kind of pin pin on that and then and focus on like not having that happen. But but putting that issue aside, if that's not the case, and we didn't see evidence of that in our context, um, you know, who who's to judge? I think is the right question to ask. Now, methodologically what we what is important here to realize is that, you know, one of the thing, you know, the reason why we do randomized trials is to establish causality. You randomly change one thing and then you get to see the consequence um, and how that changes and but you need data, different types of data in order to understand why that's happening. So sometimes you can get at it through experimental design as well by having like multiple treatment arms that try to like tease out different components and that helps shed insights into why something works. But for something like this, what we did, it was about the data that were being collected, and we needed a different kind of data to help understand um, and interpret these results that were that came through fairly clearly in the in the in the quantitative data. And luckily, we were partnered throughout this with an anthropologist Ricardo Godoy, who um, was able to bring those skills to the table and um, went back a year after the um, after the experiment was over. To um, conduct a, a series of ethnographic-style uh, research methods, in order to help understand why we observed what we observed. Yeah, so,
0: so I was wondering, Dean. So if my objective function has two factors, one is sort of a tactical pressure, or tactical pressure, I should say, from consuming alcohol, and the other is the sort of a long-term benefits, net present value of long-term benefits um that i perceive uh and this goes back to the depression question too so the individual is depressed presumably her long-term net present value is a lot lower uh in that model and so tactical pressure might really dominate all decisions right so do you see some sort of again you know we see this I mean, I, I grew up in in South India, uh, and it, it, you know, it, it used to be pretty poor. It's it's improving now, but alcohol consumption is very really, very really high. Depression is very really high. It used to have a um, suicide rate rivaling Japan at some point, point. Yeah. Uh, and so alcohol is is definitely very really highly correlated with mental health and depression issues. I think.
1: Yeah. yeah no, I, I i I think that's you know typically exactly right in the sense that you know, uh, but that in term in the sense that that's you know a man of, you know a byproduct, whether which way it's causal, again, I don't know. you know someone yeah. who you know puts heavy weight on the current versus the future and then drinks more versus uses that time and energy and and physical to you know do things that are investing in the long run. so, but it kind of goes back to this question. Of like I don't know what you know which one is causing which. First of all, <laughs> um, but there's also an element, and I think this is an important point to remember: is that like it's not, you know, it's really not. Uh, it's certainly not my place as a researcher or even a researcher who gets involved in policy, to pass judgment. I don't like the idea of passing judgment on what is the right discount rate for somebody. Like what what is the right trade-off for them to make? That's a you know, people are different. People have preferences, and and you know what I care about is to help it help people um, do you know help set up products and processes and policies so that regardless of what your preferences are, you're as as little constrained as possible to to recognize them and 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 let them you know and maximize your 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 pleasures, whatever whatever in whatever time horizon that is. Mm. so does that mean credit constraints or savings constraints because that could be very you know it could be very much binding in terms of limiting your ability to to make those trade-offs as you would uh, uh, optimally like to make them and but you know but then the only instance in which i think it's helpful to kind of pass i don't want to say pass judgment but to get involved so to speak is when when there's certainly cases and this lies at the heart of what nudges are from from richard thaler and, and cass sunstein is the idea that um you know there can be how people behave and then there can be how people want to behave if they were in a moment of deep reflection and full information so if you're able to sit down with somebody and, and we can't do what i'm about to say in reality but like if you're actually literally able to sit down with someone and have like a deep conversation about the choices they're making given their resources in terms of how they are investing and consuming in terms and and how what that implies for the lifetime of 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 earnings and consumption that they can have, that you might get a very different answer for what's optimal for them from them, from their own heart, from their own mind, than what you actually see happening without that moment of reflection and information and stuff. And so then the question is, can we set up policies which help people get to what they would say in that moment of reflection? But how do we know what that is? How do we figure that out? And that's that's one of the biggest challenges for, for nudge in that general. But that is what nudges are trying to do, is trying to recognize that um, if people are able to have that moment, a uh, hypothetical moment to kind of reflect on what they want, how do you set up decision-making processes that guide them to those decisions that they would say they want in a moment of reflection?
0: It's a bit like financial planning, uh, isn't it, Dean? I mean, it's human planning. In this case and it's actually a fairly complex question for most humans i would think i mean you, you could make ad hoc decisions based on limited set of information um so so i want to go into another paper i mean it's sort of related so pathways out of extreme poverty tackling psychosocial and capital constraints with a with the multifaceted uh, social protection program in niger so this is something that you did with your World Bank colleagues, and um, Susan, so, so do you want to uh, describe a little bit? So there are three different programs you're running here, right? And sort of comparing the effects of the three?
1: Right. So this actually has a lot of similarity to the Ghana, the Ghana study. Um, there's two key differences. One is, um, I mean, the exact definition of what went into each arm of the, of the experimental test differs. But there's a timing difference that's important in that this was a psychosocial program that was built into the um, concurrent with the economic program, whereas in Ghana they were sequential. So that's why we don't have the longer term results from Ghana that requires that second phase. But here we actually did it concurrently and so we have, we have results from that concurrence. Um, the the second difference is that the psycho the psychosocial is not exactly the same. That's why it's not um, what we what was done in, in in Niger was not labeled cognitive behavioral therapy. But if you look at the content, there's actually a fair amount of overlap between um, what's often called cognitive behavioral therapy and what was done in in um, Niger. Um, one difference with Niger is that there was a, a, a stronger emphasis on on social and community and community engagement, um, building up aspirations and role models. There was also a a, um, a film that was used as part of the program where, where where the participants watched the film and then discussed the film. And that film was intended to create kind of very salient role models. Um, so those are some of the key differences. Um, very you know a bit in the weeds those differences, but they they you know they are potentially important. Um, what was striking in Niger is that we have their we had two treatment arms, and so I think, most helpful to just compare those two, one of which had the psychosocial, along with some other aspects like savings groups and some, um, some training about enterprise and livelihood development. Um, and the other did not have the psychosocial, but then also provided a cash grant of a few hundred dollars in order to kickstart the creation of livelihood, um, and also the savings group. And the key is that that second group did do better faster But in the long run, they both ended up at the same rough point, that the psychosocial worked along with the savings to help people build up savings and build up savings. But it took time to get there for obvious reasons, because there was no immediate cash grant to say, here we go, kickstart your enterprise. They had to work work their way up little by little. But they did, and that's the striking thing. So from a cost effectiveness perspective, it actually wins because it's cost a lot less money and got the, more or less the same results two years later. Um, but if you care about the speed with which you're having an impact, then obviously you'd prefer the cash grant because it got it, it had a faster impact in the first year.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you looked into this, Dana. I'm just thinking that... Um and going back to India, for instance, you know, it has 28 different states. Uh, the development of these states are quite different uh, in terms of economics, in terms of social development. And the it is sort of a unitary system, even though they call it federal, uh, which ultimately ends up with cash transfers to a limited number of those 28, uh, 28 states based on the number of seats the politicians can garner from those states and the rest are sort of left <laughs> with, with nothing. And uh, longitudinally, we find that people who are starved for cash actually do a lot better <laughs> in the long run. And so it's a sort of an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Um, in yeah. other words, cash transfer, uh, so sort of tactically reducing the constraints don't appear to be a sustainable development policy in other words you know you have to you have to encourage entrepreneurship you have to invest you cannot just uh, you know give money to people to consume
1: um i'm not sure i would agree with that okay. uh, there's there's some really striking evidence um from many many places around the world that cash transfers unconstrained unconditional um can make really important impacts on people's lives, um, improving um, health, improving education, improving entrepreneurship, improving home structure, consumption, absorbing shocks. Um, it's short
0: term, though, right? What's that? It's short term,
1: though. If you no. look
0: at long term
1: effects, no. long run, no? long run. Now, you know the. Um, That doesn't mean it's going to always generate long run in every single context. There's a lot more that needs to be learned about how and when and why. Um, But one of the striking things is that you don't have, you know, I've yet to see a study actually going back to our Bolivia study that had that kind of outcome. Where And it does get looked at because that's one of the concerns is like, you know, do we ever see bad things happen from that? Or when I say bad here, I mean the types of consumption that we think generate negative externalities on others like alcohol and tobacco. And we're not seeing evidence of that and that's good. Um, and um, and as for long run, basically what you see typically is um, to some extent, you you get what you design for to some extent. So if you do lump sum transfers, you're gonna see more long run impact because with lump sum transfers, it's easier to make larger investments. If you instead you transfer $10 um, a week to a household or $50 a month to a household, then that's, you know, that's more likely to get used for consumption purposes to help buy food and improve food security. Um, which, to be clear, improving food security for children has long-run impacts. So, that's that alone can ha- can generate long-run change just by improving the health and nutrition of children at in really critical early years of their lives. Um, but it is the case that you're less likely, if you're making small, high-frequency transfers, to see households, you know, consistently take 20% off of that and put it in the bank or put it in a mobile money account and accumulate a large amount and then start investing. Whereas if you do a large transfer, then you're more likely to see investments that are going to lead to higher income off of those investments in short time horizons, one year, two year, three years. Um, so there is definitely an element of you get what you designed for in that regard. Um, and this, this in some sense gets back to the point that we were talking about earlier, like who gets to decide? A group like Give Directly um, is, I think, a very impressive organization for what they've created. Um, um, and, you know, they're very much deep in their ethos is this idea of unconditional um, transfers that allow people to figure out for themselves what they want. Um, but yet, it, even though that's their mantra, at the same time, they have to decide whether are they literally letting people choose all up front or dribble it out over a year? Like, you know, they do have to make choices there about how much Choice to give people about the timing of the money they're transferring, mm. and with that power comes great responsibility. There's no way to literally say no, no, no. We're just going to let everybody decide the exact cash flow timing of everything. Um, and so, so have- even though they are very much in the mantra of let people decide, let's not, let's not be paternalistic. Um, they they too have to make some decisions in that regard.
0: So, so, so you have four different uh, packages here, if I understand this correctly, Dean. Um, There's a control group who has regular cash transfer program. There's a capital group who gets um, capital, I guess. There's a psychosocial group. And then there is sort of a full uh, arm that gets, I guess, capital and psychosocial, right? That's right. And so among these four different things, control, capital, psychosocial, and full, what what, is, what what do you find in terms of results, uh, in terms of outcomes?
1: So basically we find that the capital leads to a faster growth and, and the full package does lead to the best outcomes of all. Um, but the psychosocial catches up with the capital arm after two years. And, this, and so then when you add into the fact that the psychosocial was cheaper to do, that's actually the winner from a cost effectiveness perspective. Hmm. Um, now, you know, you know, the decision on what to do is obviously a little bit more complicated than just choosing based on what I just said, because there might be social reasons, societal reasons to um, try to have accelerated um, impact. There might be total budget constraints that face the country as a whole for how much, how many people they can um, include. And if there's a desire to include more and more then you want, you might, you know, that that pushes you to wanting the psychosocial arm. Um, so there's more complicated reasons that one needs to take into account to form policy, but that is the the striking result is that both paths led to important changes two years later, big mm-hmm. changes, um, so, and but they at a different at a different clip.
0: It's sort of an optimization problem, uh, right? And I, I hate to make it mathematical, but it, so it seems like it's a function of cash, capital, and mental health ultimately what what gets good outcome it's a function of all of those things let's say um, can we determine on an individual basis how to optimize that function
1: so you know one of the things that we're that we're gonna that we are working on in different projects on this is is to understand what the heterogeneity is what are the drivers for um, heterogeneity now um, for who does better and who does worse now in a sense you're asking a question that requires two two things to vary one is heterogeneity of personality and household structure and household status um that might affect their ability to take a given set of packages and do better and then the other is to say no 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 we also want to know which packages are needed on which groups and which households and so you know the social scientist in me is excited by that question because of it helps to you know if we can really understand how to identify the constraints that are holding households back Which ones are external? Which ones are internal? And then how to how to move those different constraints? In some sense, we understand we have a much better, richer understanding of poverty. But ultimately, for what it's worth, you know, I'm personally at this whole enterprise of research not because I'm like deeply curious, but because I'm deeply passionate about the humanitarian crisis that is, you know, of poverty around the world. And I and I think of economics and these tools and. Um, as, as a good way of helping to form policy. So now realistically, are we gonna be able to set up a program which like which customizes at the household level the exact constraints based on what you, like I, I'm skeptical of that, um, that that's like a viable goal. I think there's more customization than is currently being done that might be successful in helping to identify and diagnose specific households and understanding then what you know what is the right way to help each household. So we'd probably do better than the programs as they currently doing, but like all the way to like, you know, kind of a perfect thing. No, that I don't think that's a place that will ever be. So there's always needs to be this kind of trade-off between um this kind of really deep, detailed, nuanced, you know, mathematical model to help explain and, and perfectly predict household outcomes with what's a policy that's actually possible in the world to implement?
0: And the household, I would imagine, is not able to make the right decision, right? So given three different options, uh, given a menu of cash, capital, and uh, and mental health related things, I would imagine the household is not able to assemble the right menu from that, right? They don't have enough information to do that.
1: So, um so first of all, the cash and capital were kind of the same. So I would just say okay. it is, two. Um, I, I'm third, of a is sort of training, training and information about markets and enterprises and things of that nature. Um, and um, but that's not, um, you know, I think the question you're asking I think is a fascinating one, but um, I agree is kind of wrought with challenges and problems. Um, that and it's not to say that they can't tell you. You know, optimize for themselves. Um, but, you know, how do they need to, ha- like, let me put it this way like, we go through a ton to figure out what's actually working and what's not. Yeah. Um, it's not to say that if, if, if everybody, if if they all knew exactly what the impact of each thing was, um, it would make our lives a lot easier because it would yeah. just be like, can you just tell me the impact of, I'm going to like offer you 17,000 different things and I just, I could like save a lot of time if you just told me the impact of these things like like that's not actually an easy thing to know. Mm. And so that's asking a lot of households to always understand um, what what is this thing that's being offered and what's it's what's the path that will happen if I if I take that option over this option. And so it's not to say that there isn't some insights that can be gleaned and there's some autonomy. that we want to embrace in terms of giving people that option and that and kind of that respect. So I'm going to speak of saying, "Here's three different things. Which do you prefer?" Um, but we have to be really thoughtful about, well, what information are they? Do they possibly have to make that decision? Yeah, I
0: wondered, uh, Dean. There's some sort of self-selection experiment that you can run. Mm-hmm. You, you let the, you know the household self-select yeah. different buckets. And then you measure the outcomes and see if they actually made the right decisions.
1: Right. So we actually did that in Mali, where we, um, with credit, where we have a study where we get to observe people who are who select into a lending group, a microcredit group. Um, it could be also that the group was filtering. There was a. It's a two-sided selection process. But we very clearly, we you see very strong evidence that the individuals that do borrow have much higher returns to capital than the individuals that do not we have a second stage where we then gave cash grants to people and and saw their saw the impact of the cash grants were very different on the the kinds of households that were borrowing versus not
0: excellent yeah i think we are, we are running out of time uh, <laughs> excellent yeah th- thanks so much for doing this uh, Dan. Okay. i really really enjoyed right.
1: the no, it was nice talking with you um looking forward to hearing when it comes out thank you and, and hi everybody out there <laughs> thanks um